You're listening to a sermon from Plus Life, a church that exists to see lives changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our prayer is that you will be stirred in your heart and renewed in your mind as you hear the preaching of God's word today. I'm to tell someone the title of my sermon, or rather ask someone the title of my sermon this morning. Does Jesus judge? Does Jesus judge? Back in 2013, when I was uh, working with YWAM, Youth with a Mission, I had the opportunity to serve on the mission field in the Philippines in a place called Olongapo City or Subic Bay. Uh, back in World War II, this was a place where the U.S. Navy situated their base in, and as a result of that, there was a lot of red light districts that were built around in this city. And we worked with this foundation called the Tamar Foundation, where their main ministry was working with these women in the red light district, specifically in the bars, um, and, and, and try to get them out of that working situation. In the Philippines, prostitution is illegal, but it, it's also legal if you are classified or you're employed as a bar girl in these, uh, in these red light districts. Uh, it's sort of their version of a hostess. But really, it's, it's just a way to get around prostitution. A lot of guys go to these bars and, and pick up women and to take home with them. And um, this, this ministry that we're working with would go into these bars to specifically uh, minister to these women and share the gospel and try to get them out of those lifestyles and those situations, offer them education so that they could go and, 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 and live, uh, live a different way. And so my team had the opportunity to go work with them in that. We did a lot of connecting and building relationships for about an entire week while we were there. And then the, the accumulation of all of that is that we had the opportunity of doing a Bible study in one of these actual bars that, that we were frequently visiting and, and, and have some of these women come into this Bible study and hear us, uh, hear, hear the gospel that way. And, and my team had chosen me to share the word for that event, for that Bible study. And as I was seeking the Holy Spirit uh, for what kind of word to give to, again, these, these sex workers, these prostitutes in this bar, the Holy Spirit prompted me to this story. And uh, to be honest, I was kind of uh, nervous about it. It's sort of like, okay, so let me get this straight. You want me to preach this passage about a woman caught in adultery and sexual immorality to a group of prostitutes, to a group of uh, women who have been abused by men, who have, been, or, or, who have also been willfully committing this sin. Uh, you know, it's kind of on the nose, right, Holy Spirit, right? It's kind of... Uh, iffy, and you know, why not John 3.16, talking about God's love and, and whatnot, but I, I remember very clearly that the Holy Spirit was, was saying, you know, it's not about them. The story is not about them. It's about Jesus. And we'll talk more about that and how that went, but this passage that we're about to unpack for us this morning is it's full of controversy, Unbelievers and secular society often quote this passage. Even Christians often quote this passage in order to silence other Christians who talk about sin. See, Jesus wouldn't judge, right? Look, he never threw a stone in this story. Or everyone is a sinner, therefore don't judge. 
Oftentimes, it's, uh, often the result of that is Christians being silent or being too afraid to talk about sin, or oftentimes believers will end up enabling or affirming sin, because we're all sinners anyways, right? Like we don't, no one casts a throw, uh, stone, right? Let's all just love one another, just as Jesus loved this woman in this story. But as we'll see upon closer inspection, we see that Jesus does, in fact, judge Jesus judges sinners, every sinner in this passage, and he even confers a sentence upon them. He does judge, and even more severely than we often do, and consider sin to be, uh, and consider the weight of sin. So my hope for us this morning is that we we would be reminded of the Savior's heart towards sin and sinners overall. That we would learn how we should see sin and how to deal and treat sin. Sinners who are caught in sin. And if sin is in our own lives, that we would see that and, and, and to the degree in which we must judge it and kill it in our own lives and, and put it to death. And, uh, and the hope for us this morning is, is not, not whether, it's is not to answer whether or not Jesus judges, he does, but to what degree does he judge? And to, does, does that permit us to do the same? So let's get into our passage and unpack uh, this, this, this unique passage for us this morning. Everyone say, jump for me. So first of all, let's, let's talk really quickly about sort of the elephant in the room. If you have the ESV in your hands or the, the, the elect standard version of the Bible, you'll see there's a very small footnote that says, the earliest manuscripts do not include this passage. And I, I think it's very important for us to discuss it and really understand why, why that is. So in, in the science of reconstructing, reconstructing books of the Bible from manuscripts, that's called textual criticism. And part of the reason why that footnote is there is because the earliest manuscripts of the Gospel of John do not have this part of chapter 8. It does have in some later, in later manuscripts, but the earliest manuscripts do not have that. Uh, in fact, in some manuscripts, this passage is also found in the Gospel of Luke. And in, in some manuscripts of the Gospel of Luke, you'll see this exact same story, then we don't have it in, in, at least in our modern day Bibles. Now, there's also a lot of evidence when you look back to the original Greek of this passage is that that. that it's not written the same way as the rest of the Gospel of John. In fact, there's a great sense that it was, late, it was put in later, at a later time, added on by some scribes and has been written in a different style of Greek. And, uh, Greek. So, so, so there's a great question here. So is this passage Scripture? Is this passage Scripture? Inspired by God's Word? Well, or by, by God Himself. So most biblical scholars will agree that the issue of this passage is not so much inspiration, but rather location. Where does it belong? Does it belong in the Gospel of John, or does it belong in the Gospel of Luke? So it's not a matter of questioning whether it's an apostolic, or it's apostolic in nature, meaning it's inspired by the Word of God, written by, by, by someone who is inspired by, by the Holy Spirit uh, to write down the words of God. Most, uh, most scholars, in fact, agree that it is, and we'll see that as we unpack this passage and how it connects with the rest of Scripture. Actually, the running theory about this passage is that it's coming from an oral tradition. 
Here's another story that was passed on from the disciples to disciples to disciples, right, of what Jesus did in this situation. An oral tradition. They were telling stories about it. And at some point, scribes finally wrote it down. At the end of the day, again, is the, the question is, is it an inspired word of God? Again, most scholars believe it is. And it's just a matter of placing or, or where it should be placed. Now, in my own personal opinion, I believe that because God is sovereign, that he has preserved this passage specifically in God's word in the rest, with the rest of Scripture for specific reasons and for a specific purpose to accomplish and communicate his gospel. Now, with that said, our purpose for this study, or at least for this morning, although we are continuing our Gospel of John series, is to really isolate this passage and, and look at it as a standalone piece and, and not really connect it to the rest of John's gospel, because, again, for the the mentioned reasons. So let's pick up on verse 53 of our passage. It says, They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, like in many many other other gospels, after every uh, great discipling or teaching moment or a great miracle moment, evangelism moment, Jesus often retreated by himself and would go up to a mountain to pray. And supposedly, if this is supposed to be where it's at, this is, it's in relation to the great, the Feast of Booths that we've been talking about in our study in the Gospel of John. So now early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst. They said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law of Moses, now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? And then verse 6, this is this sort of the setup of what why this entire scene is happening. This they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. So again, here's this great scene. Jesus is back in the temple teaching. And then these Pharisees and scribes bring a woman that's been caught red-handed in adultery and throws her before Jesus. As the passage said, this was all to set up a trap for Jesus. They wanted to corner him as they've done so many times before. If Jesus said no to stoning this woman then he would be directly going and opposing the law of Moses, which all the Jews believed. And, of course, is the word of God. And if he did say yes, this is interesting, because if he did say yes, it would be, be against the Roman law against the Jewish nation. And Roman, when, when Rome had occupied Israel during that time, they removed the power to enact capital punishment in, in, in Israel meaning only the Romans could enact capital punishments. Hence why in Easter, the Easter story, the Jews had to bring Jesus to Pilate in order to get him crucified because only the Romans could crucify, only the Romans could enact capital punishments. So now if Jesus said, don't, or rather, yes, stone this woman, and the people did, the Pharisees could now go to the Roman officials and say, look, Jesus told the crowd to stone this woman. He broke the Roman law, arrest him, crucify him, you know, get rid of him. So that was a scenario, that was a sort of trap that, uh, that these Pharisees and the scribes were setting up for Jesus. So now what was Jesus' response? I love this. He wrote on the ground. He just bent down and started writing on the ground. 
And of course, as our pastor says, the people continued to pester Jesus. They demanded action from him. They wanted something from Jesus, an answer on, on this, this trap that they had set out, laid out for him. And then in verse 7 of our passage, uh, it goes on to say, this is what Jesus said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Let him who is without sin be the first to throw a stone. This is the, this is the verse that is often quoted by, by even uh, secular society and unbelievers, often referring to Jesus as the one who didn't cast the, the stone. And, and oftentimes when we hear this passage, we think of it being as so very revolutionary, Right? It's so different from the Old Testament and the law. And, and here's a secret, though. It's, it's really not. In fact, what we see here is that Jesus is actually paraphrasing the method of execution from the Old Testament according to the law. See, the Jews wanted to weaponize the law against the one who wrote it, which is actually hilarious. But again, Jesus did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it and even to bring it great clarity if you remember in the other Gospels, the other times where, where, where Jesus would say, you've heard it said, if you, have, if you have lusted after a woman in your heart, you've already committed adultery. Or he said, if you hate your brother, you're liable for the same judgment, the same punishment as someone who has committed murder. Jesus is clarifying once again what the law truly means. And in this, in this case, he's doing the same thing. He's clarifying the extent to the degree that we fail as, as sinners and how we ought to understand the law. And see, in the Old Testament, when it came to capital punishment, uh, namely stoning, it says this in Deuteronomy chapter 17. I'll show, you, I'll show you this passage for us. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, when it comes to someone who breaks the law or the covenant of God, it says in Deuteronomy 17 verse 2, if there is found among you within any of your towns that the Lord your God is giving you, a man or woman who does what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God in transgressing his covenant, then in verse 6, here's the punishment. On the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. The hand of the witness shall be first against him to put him to death. And afterward, the hand of all the people, so you shall purge the evil from your midst. This is the law of God. This is where capital punishment comes from in, in the law of Moses. When somebody breaks the laws of God, the covenant of God, and someone transgresses the covenant of the Lord, that they are to be put to death on the basis of two or three witnesses. And of course, we've heard those terms before in the New Testament. That's how you do a lot of church discipline now. On the basis of two or three witnesses, that's when you carry out some sort of judgment. Now, reading from that, from that passage, and this is again the passage that Jesus is referring to and paraphrasing in this statement that he makes in, in John chapter 8. We see that the Pharisees are approaching this woman and this stoning situation in a very contradictory way, in a, very one, a way that's not in line with the law itself. For one thing, this woman was caught in adultery. Where was the man? The law required that both the man and the woman were stoned to death. Where was this man? In addition to that, there were no witnesses presented. 
in this passage, just this angry mob that wanted Jesus, that wanted both this woman and Jesus dead. There was no witnesses, there was no two or three witnesses that could confirm that this woman was indeed caught in adultery. And if, again, and, and again, if, if the witness was present, according to that passage in Deuteronomy, it was the witness's responsibility to cast that first stone. Then the people would come in and throw in the rest of the stone. But, but now, in addition to all of that, here's, here's where Jesus elevates and where he clarifies this, the weight of, of this, this judgment, this command of, of casting stones. He says, right, he says, right, uh, he, he says in our passage, you who is without sin cast the first stone. What he's getting at and what he's paraphrasing in our passage here is the last part of, of that Deuteronomy passage that we just read. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. Only those who did not commit the same sin could participate in the stoning according to Mosaic law. That's, that's the underlying statement of that. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. The underlying sentiment is that those stoning would be innocent of that same sin that they are judging. Capital punishment of, the capital punishment of stoning was given to ensure that there would be no sin, no, absolutely no sin among the people. Again, to purge it. You can't purge the sin if there are still sinners in your midst. Again, where was this guy? Where was the guy? So the Pharisees were really twisting the law just to entrap Jesus and to have their will. What Jesus is doing, he is elevating the, the, he's elevating the level of condemnation uh, towards, towards these Pharisees and towards those who would use the law against, against this woman who was caught in adultery. What we see about Jesus in our passage is that, first and foremost, Jesus condemns all sin. Jesus condemns all sin. It's not just the woman who was caught in adultery. He's saying to these Pharisees and his scribes, if you are guilty of this, 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 the same sin, you should not be here. You should not be demanding this. Again, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. If throwing stones, if, if you want to throw stones, get ready for a purge. That's what Jesus is getting at. We're going to stone, we're going to stone everyone in this place. The sentiment here for us is, you know, oftentimes when we read this passage is, well, guess I, I guess I can't throw a stone because, because you know, uh, I, I'm a sinner too. I can't judge. Well, no, that's not, that's not the only sentiment that we're supposed to take from this. What Jesus is getting, that, what Jesus is getting is, at is that, listen, if you have sin in your own life, you must deal with that first. Make a judgment on your own life first. Deal with your own sin first. In fact, we even hear this in Matthew chapter 7. Jesus himself says, Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. That's, he's again, it's a parallel to that, the, the Mosaic law. You can only judge an individual if you yourself is innocent of that thing that you're judging them. And then he goes on to say in that same passage, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. 
First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Notice, he doesn't say in that passage, take out the log in your eye, don't worry about your brother. He doesn't say that. He says to take out the log from your own eye first, then go out and take the speck out of your brother's eye. Deal with both sins. Deal with your own sin first, then go deal with your brother's sin. Jesus, again, condemned all sin. The demand, first and foremost, was to deal with your own sin. By the way, we read read it, and it says it twice in our passage, what was Jesus writing on the ground? In all the Gospels, this is the only mention of Jesus ever writing anything. What was Jesus writing on the ground? Well, in truth, the Bible doesn't say, and there's only really speculations as to what he was writing. Some, some scholars think that he was writing the Ten Commandments on the ground, right? He was listing every single one out, and as the, as the scribes and the Pharisees are watching him, they start to notice, oh, I, I lied. Oh, you know, I, I, I've coveted. And they were being convicted by what he was writing. Some other scholars believe that he was writing the names of the men in the crowd who had committed that same sin of adultery. And that sort of lines up with what Scripture says in Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 13. It says, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth. For they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. Again, it's all speculation, but for whatever it was, Jesus continues writing on the ground. And then in verse 8 of our passage, Verse 8 of our passage says, And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. So what we see from our passage, it wasn't really what Jesus was writing on the ground. It's what he said. Again, referring back to the Mosaic Law in Deuteronomy. The older Pharisees who understood the law better understood the relationship that that Jesus is making between that statement and the Mosaic law, and so they left first. They recalled what what was said, what the law required for all sin, that all sin should be punished. This, This is what Jesus was upholding, the 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 demand for punishment for all sin. This is Jesus wasn't just just making an excuse or, or trying to give a pass to this woman caught in adultery. No. Jesus was demanding that all sin would be condemned, judged, starting with personal sin. So again, none of this, you know, Jesus doesn't judge business, right? I mean, just read to the end of the, the Bible, Revelation chapter 20. It's Jesus who is sitting on the throne, sending people to hell. God hates all sin and condemns it with great prejudice. We have to understand that. Now, what else do we see? In verse 10 of our passage, it says, Jesus stood up and said to her, this woman, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Now, what we see from this great passage is that Jesus 
also confers mercy to sinners. Jesus confers mercy to sinners. And we don't just see it in this latter part of our passage. We see it right from the beginning, back in verse 3. Again, this woman was caught in adultery, caught in the act. These, these religious leaders threw her in front of Jesus, dragged her before Jesus, and, and left her there. Instead of joining the mob, Jesus shows mercy by simply remaining silent. He was withholding what she deserved. She, no doubt, was caught in adultery. But instead of joining this angry mob, Jesus remains silent. And I think this is a great lesson for believers. Oftentimes we are so quick, and I'm absolutely guilty of this too. Oftentimes we are so quick to join the angry mob when something offends us. That, that Justin Trudeau did this again. Ah. So quick to join the mob. But again, right, the, the, the lesson for us is that maybe we should be not so quick to, to judging, not so quick to judge when we ourselves, as we've been talking about, need to deal with our own sin first. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 11, it talks about a similar situation. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need for a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. And I love this. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. See, instead of being quick to judge, why don't we be like Jesus and be generous with mercy instead? Instead of being so quick to jump on to the, the bandwagon of hating sinners around the world that is messing up our society and, and leading our kids astray and all of these things, why don't we be quick to and generous in showing mercy instead? I mean, can you imagine for a minute what this woman was going through? The shame, the guilt that she must have felt caught red-handed in the act of adultery, dragged out, thrown in the streets, in the temple. I mean, if you've ever felt ashamed or guilty or embarrassed about your own sin in life, imagine having that in, in public view. Not to mention it was just her, once again. There's no, her lover wasn't there. The abandonment she would have felt. And knowing that she was being dragged there to be stoned, as was required by the Mosaic law, she knew that she was on death's door. Imagine how this woman felt. You know, I think we oftentimes as believers, we are so quick to to judge the sinner, and rightly so, because sin is evil, as we've been discussing. At the same time, we understand the consequences and the effects of sin and how it damages and how it hurts, not just the individual, but families around. No doubt this woman was caught in adultery. Yes, she sinned, but it doesn't make the consequences of sin any less devastating. 
Jesus could have joined the mob and he would have been justified for doing it. Even in the end, when, when, when everybody left and it was only Jesus left, if he had picked up a rock and threw it at this woman, he would have been justified. The only perfect human being who's ever walked this earth. But Jesus, is, Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Neither do I condemn you. Now something, something is very interesting here. See, not only did Jesus have the right to condemn and punish this woman, to throw a stone at her, but he was also required, according to the law, to punish this sin. We just read it, right, in Deuteronomy. Not only had the right, but he was required to purge this sin from the midst of the people. So what was Jesus doing? Was he just giving a pass to this woman? Well, as we know, in the grand scheme of things, the reason why Jesus did not punish this woman is because he was going to take the punishment for that sin. I'm not going to punish you. I'm not going to throw a stone at you today because I'm going to take it on the cross. I'm looking past this sin because I'm going to pay for it on the cross. We read about this in Romans chapter 3, verse 23 Starting from there, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, from whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This woman's sin, past sins, God passes over, the, shows mercy and grace to the individual because all of that judgment and that wrath is going to be placed on Christ or was placed on Christ at the cross. And as a result of that, that allows Christ to show mercy to this individual. And that shows us that we can show mercy to sinners as well. That we can show grace to sinners as well. Now, lest we think that this woman who was caught in adultery gets away scot-free, right? a free pass, we need to think again. It's always funny to me that whenever an unbeliever or or some Christian quotes this passage about not judging they always leave out the end part. They always leave out the last verse when Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Go from now on sin no more. Jesus is recognizing that this woman is a sinner. Jesus is recognizing that this woman did sin. So he made a judgment. He made a call. This, and by the way, this, this, what, Je what Jesus says here, this isn't a suggestion from Christ, Right? This isn't a suggestion, it isn't casual to Christ. He's just saying, all right, go on now, you little rascal, don't let me catch you again. That's not, what's, that's not what he's trying to get at here. He says, go. It's the same word here used in the Great Commission to go and make disciples. It is a command to not sin anymore, to live your life differently. Stop living the way you did. That's called repentance. You were going one way, living one way towards sin for yourself. Now here is Christ saying, stop, go the other way. 
Don't live that way anymore. Go and sin no more. Here's the last thing we see from our passage about Christ. Jesus calls sinners to repentance. Jesus calls sinners to repentance. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises. Some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that, you should, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Listen, Christ never confers mercy without commanding repentance. Christ never confers mercy without commanding repentance, without requiring repentance. Listen, I'm dropping this stone so that you can repent. I'm showing you mercy and grace so that you have the opportunity to live a different life. That's what's happening in this scene. Not, really, someone who has truly understood and grasped the weight of, the, of their sin and the punishment that God has withheld will understand this. Will understand the new life that they have been given, the, 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 the opportunity to flee from sin, to live differently. They'll understand that this mercy was given to them so that they had a chance to re repent and to live differently. You know, so I, story back in YWAM and in the Philippines, I had this task to go preach to these, uh, to a room full of bar girls and these sex workers and being obedient to the Holy Spirit, preach this passage. You know, I couldn't make eye contact the entire time, right? Sort of looking at my team members or looking at the floor, looking at the ceiling, but it's preaching this passage just as the Holy Spirit led, just as we've talked about it today, that Christ was recognizing sin. I told them that, again, that this woman in this passage was deserving of death. That her act of committing adultery and sexual immorality was deserving of death. And I told them that the story wasn't about them, that it was about Jesus. How Jesus deals with sinners with mercy and love. And what he could do for their sin as well. And the freedom that he offers from, from, from sin. Freedom to, to live a different way. To no longer be in the bondage of sin. I remember uh, you know, after preaching it and coming to an end of it, and looking up, and all these women were in tears. My, 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 even my team were in tears. See, most people know that they, at least those who have been in it, who have been damaged by sin, who have been living through it, most people know that they are sinners and need to, be, need to be freed from sin. Most people who understand the weight of their sin are just looking for freedom, looking for hope. They need to be told that Christ is the one who can give them freedom. Christ has done the work so that they can be free from sin, that they can choose a different way of living. They no longer have to choose sin. And that's an invitation for, for all sinners, 
That's the invitation for the lost. Listen, that there is no amount of sin, no, no depraved lifestyle that you could have ever lived or are living that the Savior cannot save you from or, or free you from or give you a different path. You know, again, here, here, here was I talking to a room of, of these sex workers and these prostitutes, and at the end of that night, after my team and I went and talked to them personally, a handful of them, a handful of them chose to follow Christ that night. Went back to the Tamar Foundation and, and signed up with them, started you know, getting educated in how they can live differently. A lot of these people needed to see that there is a way out, that there is hope, there is redemption, there is forgiveness, and that forgiveness is only found in Jesus Christ. And if you have yet to reconcile your heart with God, your sin with God, because you think that you have, been, you have been so wayward or you have sinned so much that you are unredeemable, that is a lie straight from the enemy. That is a lie straight from the enemy. You know, in the Old Testament, the sin of adultery was considered unforgivable. In the Old Testament, whenever you sinned, right, you would, you would just take an animal and, and you'd put your sin or, or confer your sin onto that animal and then the, the priest would sacrifice it and then you, you'd, you'd atone for an entire year's worth of sin, except for the sin of adultery. But here is a Savior granting mercy and grace to this woman caught in it because only he could take it away. Because only he was that perfect sacrifice that could take away the sins of the world. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So again, I invite you, if you have yet to reconcile whatever sin is in your life with the Lord Jesus Christ, I invite you to do so today. You can be forgiven today. You can live differently today. And to the church, brothers and sisters in Christ, let's be like the Savior. Let's be slow to judge and generous with mercy. Let's condemn sin just as Jesus did, but let's also confer mercy like he does. Inviting even the lost, the sinner, the most wretched individual for forgiveness. Telling people, giving them hope that they can have life change. Reminding people of what Jesus has accomplished on the cross and in the grave so that forgiveness and freedom from sin can happen. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, I... Lord, I pray, even as we have this time of reflection, that you would remind us of whatever sin we still harbor in our lives. 
whatever that secret sin is, whatever it is that, God, we have yet to surrender to you, whatever we have yet to confess to you, even the sin, Lord God, that we have for some reason thought is okay in our lives. Something that we've just settled with living with. I pray, oh God, just as we've been talking about in this, in this passage, that you would remind us of the weight of sin. The absolute disgusting nature of sin. The damage it does. The hurt it enacts on not just our own lives, but the lives around us. And I pray, oh God, that you would give us a fresh disgust over sin in our lives. The Lord, we would be able to come before your cross right now and, and surrender it all and reconcile that sin to the cross of Jesus Christ. Let us not desire after sin, oh God. Just as a Puritan preacher has said, Lord God, let sin be bitter so that Christ might be sweet to us once more. Bring fresh conviction, oh God, that we might truly be able to live in the freedom your death on the cross and your resurrection in the grave offers us. And I pray, oh God, that for those who are still living in the guilt and shame of sin, that you would remind them that there is no longer condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That just as we have read today, Lord, you have conferred your righteousness on us have declared us justified before the Father. That we no longer have to listen to the lie of the enemy that says that we're still our past, that we're still what we did yesterday, that we are still defined by the sins of today or tomorrow. Lord, I pray that you would remind us of our identity in the Savior. We are forgiven and loved by the Savior. Again, I pray for those, God, who hear my voice and have yet to put their faith and trust in you. Who have yet to reconcile their sin to the cross of Jesus Christ, that you would do so today. That they, oh God, you, that you would move in their hearts today and they would seek for forgiveness. That they would pursue repentance. Today would be the day of salvation. Lord, we thank you and we praise you. Because at the end of the day, Lord, this woman in this story is our story. We were caught red-handed in, in the sins of our flesh, oh God. But yet you conferred mercy, you demonstrated grace, you showed love and forgiveness, and you took our sin onto yourself and nailed it to a tree, nailed it to a cross. We thank you for the great love in which you loved us, Lord. 
and the forgiveness that we have experienced in you. We pray these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope that you were blessed by the sermon today. If you would like to learn about the gospel or know more about our church, please visit pluslifepeople.com. Remember to subscribe for more content. Until next time, stay blessed.